Welcome to the Dry Bones Ministries podcast, where we strive to provide great preaching and teaching so that listeners will discover or rediscover the goodness, truth, and beauty of our Catholic faith. If you are interested in supporting the work we are doing, visit us at drybonespgh.org or follow us on social media at drybonespgh. Thanks for joining us. We hope that you're inspired, uplifted, and encouraged. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another special episode of the Dry Bones Ministries podcast series on Reflections on the Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. Today we start the chapter on Eros, or Romance, and it's the penultimate chapter. So only one left, and we will come to a beautiful conclusion with the description of divine love, agape. But before that, we come to Eros, and he kind of makes a light of the fact that this isn't the, the first chapter, as if this is the most important love against kind of how our, our culture emphasizes it, but waits and puts it off that we would have a, a firm foundation of affection that, remember, is this uh, strong tie, bond, uniting parents and children, children and parents, but even uniting different people and people with things by a strong familiarity and a real liking of of one another. So this affection can actually then uh, fall into even the love of friends and brothers, sisters, and then even the love of lovers can have a really strong affection. Not only do I love you, but I like you as well. And so too with friendship, that there is a, a really important foundation there that he even argues, if you remember from the last chapter, last episode, he proposes this great mental exercise. If you had uh, two lovers and they were to really consider a, a toss-up of having to sacrifice either the full gravity of their incredible romance or the full weight of their beautiful friendship. Which one could they not live without? Which kind of begs this, like, the friendship. I couldn't imagine living without my best friend. And so, yeah, romance that's so elevated and exalted and even worshipped, he talks about that in this chapter, is really put in its place when we have an authentic look at the other loves, um, especially whenever we consider the last love of of agape. So anyway, maybe um, just to appreciate, there's there's something about romantic love that is really um, underwhelming in the scriptures, or less than underwhelming, I would say, Painted in the negative. And in so many ways, this is because the first romance uh, went so wrong in this love between Adam and Eve that really, because of their disobedience, their sin against God, really led to uh, their desire being for one another and marriage even being a remedy for concupiscence. And so for most of the way that if you look at the scriptures, the way that it depicts the love between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, it's 
tainted. It really is. It's almost always negative. But there is a beautiful depiction in the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs that captures it in a beautiful way. This is just from the first chapter. Oh, that you would kiss me with the kisses of your mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will exalt your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. So, just powerful, right? And yeah, incredible, beautiful love poetry, but really put in its true elevated sense. Draw me after you. Let us make haste. Like you, take you and all that is uniquely and unrepeatably you and draw me after you. Call me to yourself so that we might be together and let us make haste and run. There's this urgency in romantic love. So what does C.S. Lewis talk uh, say about it? I'll stop talking about what I think. I'll focus on C.S. Lewis. There's so much to say about romantic love. I'll just try and present briefly and succinctly what, what he says. So when he talks about eros, romance, he means being in love. And he kind of plays with it and says, or if you prefer that kind of love, which lovers are in. So it's that state of being in love. It's the that like magnetic force, that interest between one person and another that draw them into their orbit. Well, friends are shoulder to shoulder. Lovers are face to face, consumed with the other person and who they are. He quickly makes a distinction and he's going to play with this throughout the whole chapter. And it's important for us to um, make the differentiation as well. He says that Eros includes other things besides sexual activity, I take for granted. And that's really good for us to kind of think about. Do, do we take that for granted? Or do we oftentimes reduce romance to sex? And just kind of think whether it's the activity or it's the drive, it's the desire, it's the passion, that we kind of think that is the, the main force of, of romance. Or does it include a lot of other aspects? Because for C.S. Lewis, he says, I take that for granted. Um, and he's going to call this purely carnal or sexual element within Eros, he's going to call that Venus. And why? Well, it's it's because he's British and he wrote this book in the late 50s. And um, so I don't know. I don't know why he doesn't just call it sex or sexuality, um, but he calls it Venus to use in old usage. And so Venus is the purely physical, the instinctual or the animal part, he calls it within Eros. Um, But then it's also outside of Eros, too. He's going to play with that, whether it's within Eros or without Eros. So to appreciate this, he kind of talks about, you know, there's some Puritans that think in terms of morality that for Eros, romance, to be pure, Venus or that sexuality component needs to be removed. And he said, 
that's just really dangerous and not true. That there are plenty of times in human history where sex has happened without romance. And that does not in itself make it good or bad. Conversely, though, he says, this act done under the influence of a soaring and iridescent eros, which reduces the soul, reduces the role of the senses to a minor consideration, may yet be plain adultery, may involve breaking a wife's heart, deceiving a husband, betraying a friend, polluting hospitality, and deserting your children. It has not pleased God that the distinction between a sin and a duty should turn on fine feelings. Oh, this is so good for us today. Do you get the point that he's making? That there can be this sense of like a moral responsibility and even a duty to be true to my feelings. I have this really strong romantic passion towards this other person. I know I'm married. I know I have children. I know I have like, but I'm in love. And literally our, our culture today would would celebrate this in large part. It would say like, oh yeah, you need to be true. And maybe even the spouse in some like twisted way would say like, well, I don't want to get in the way of like where, where your heart is. It's like, we're so, we're so lost. Um, but this isn't true romance, like, or we need to see how to evaluate and to respond to romance as needing something more it needs help as he'll say at the at the very end um okay so which comes first does eros grow out of venus out of the sexual desire and this is kind of the evolutionary uh position there's the mere development from the biological impulse and this is just um kind of really as he will go on to say kind of a, a sad reduction of who we are as human people. Um, and he's not necessarily attacking an evolutionary position, but when you, when you look at true Eros, this romantic attraction, it really is an attraction to the person, to the person. He has this, this great kind of description of, um, the fact that she is a woman is far less important than the fact that she is herself. He is full of desire, but the desire may not be sexually toned. If you asked him what he wanted, the true reply would often be to go on thinking of her. And then he'll go on to say that it's that only at the end of this tidal wave of romance that finally is there room for the consideration of sex to emerge. And so instead of just from this sexual impulse that we have kind of coming from this like animalistic position that there evolves the our sense of romance, like, huh, and maybe I love her too. It's like, no, there's, there's something content in romance to be consumed with the other person. My kind of thought of, of this point is what happens to that in our over-sexualized world? I think especially about how confusing love is for young people, that they might have a real um, desire for an, another person, and our culture, our society just infuses sexual undertones from the very beginning that, oh, well, this reflects your sexuality, your identity, or your attractions, when meanwhile, 
are we not actually giving Eros its true freedom and space to kind of just like allow there to be just, yeah, a, a real infatuation, just a real, um, yeah, beholding the other person. An infatuation, beholding, I don't want to like over glorify it and and but at the same time yeah to give it space it seems like yeah we really take that away and suffocate it and then just infuse it with this like hypersexualization and maybe then we're really confusing um our our young people so can we separate eros and sex he says um this really interesting insight that sexual desire This Venus, he says, without Eros, wants it, the thing in itself. And by that, he means sex, the sexual act. But Eros wants the beloved. So here's the the separation, right? The thing is a sensory pleasure. That is an event occurring within one's own body. When a man or woman goes out looking for a sexual encounter... Are they looking for another person or are they actually just looking for the pleasure? And the person is just, a, he'll call it, a necessary piece of apparatus. So he's kind of attacking this idea of, you know, going out on the prowl, like looking for a, a one-night stand, looking for a woman, or maybe a woman looking for a man. And he's like, well, are they really looking for the person or are they just looking for that pleasure? And so, yeah, we kind of use these words interchangeably and to his point to like really give eros and sex their proper dignity we need to start talking about them properly now eros makes a man really want not a woman he says but a particular woman in some mysterious but quite indisputable fashion the lover desires the beloved herself and not the pleasure she can give I love this. This just seems very different than the way that I hear our our culture, our society, or especially the young people that I talk to. This is very different than than all of that. We kind of think of romance as just coming from yeah, this deep unbridled passion for sex and and romance is just kind of like intertwined in the midst of that. But no, Eros is looking for a particular beloved. Beloved. And pleasure, as he'll go on to say, is, is a byproduct. Uh, did you notice the reference he gives here to the Roman poet and philosopher Lucretius? He says, Lucretius, on the other hand, says that love actually impairs sexual desire. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> love impairs sexual desire. The emotion was a distraction. It spoiled the cool and critical receptivity of his palate. Friends, this is rearing its ugly head in what we call the hookup culture. The hookup culture that says, yep, love gets in the way of sexual pleasure. And this is why even the term hookup is so neatly, nicely ambiguous. What does it mean to hook up? Yeah, it can can mean a whole spectrum of things, activities, or experiences. 
but it's just kind of a status thing of uh, an encounter with another person. A hookup is also, it's really important that there would be alcohol, maybe even drugs, that the lights would be down, that there is this kind of understanding that it's not going to be permanent. It's just going to be for this one moment, this one night, right? All these things that here Lucretius is saying, yeah, love gets in the way of sexual pleasure. And so in a time of sexual exploration, it should just be about the pleasure, the sex. Oh, how, how sad that just like when we rip these two apart and don't actually allow them to interact in a proper way, everything becomes distorted. But that's where we are. And there's, <laughs> there's no surprises here. I'm hoping you're not, yeah, like, hmm, I never didn't think we were that bad. It's like, yep, it's that bad. C.S. Lewis says, without eros, sexual desire, like every other desire, is a fact about ourselves. Within eros, romance, it's rather about the beloved. It becomes almost a mode of perception, entirely a mode of expression. It feels objective, something outside of us in the real world. That is why eros, though the king of pleasures, always at, it, at its height has the air of regarding pleasure as a byproduct. To think about it would plunge us back in on ourselves in our own nervous system. It would kill Eros, as you can kill the finest mountain prospect by locating it all in your own retina and optic nerves. Anyway, whose pleasure? For one of the first things Eros does is to obliterate the distinction between giving and receiving. It's a beautiful thing and a great, a great insight, is it not? That, that if, if we try and remove romance from the sexual pleasure and just focus on the pleasure, oh, how that just destroys it. But if the focus is on the other person, a real honoring, reverencing, a real giving of oneself, um, then the, the pleasure follows. And sometimes that pleasure can be twisted as maybe being a, a bad thing or it's like no no this is literally the way that god created sexuality that he would allow us to have not only a drive a desire a hunger for it but also then the pleasure of two people coming together in the right context with the right um, promises and everything else and so in this yeah that it that the pleasure would be a blessing for for that couple. Can there be selfishness in it? Ah, oh, yeah, of course there can, because we're humans and we can turn it in on, our, on ourselves. But in this amazing way, especially of romance, it's, it's in looking to give oneself and in the pleasuring of the other that there can be the reciprocity of pleasure and this mutual giving and receiving turns into this beautiful symphony poetry that God allows to actually echo in this cosmic dance of the giving and receiving that literally allows all of us to breathe and live and reproduce uh, according to his glorious design. So yeah, what, what an amazing thing, but it's about the person, the reverencing of, of that dignity and and even a reverencing of the, the real dignity of the sexual act as well.
Okay, where's the danger in Eros? Here's where C.S. Lewis is. <laughs> I don't know. He's he's unique, and he's also in his own time period. Um, but for for him, he starts off by saying, "I think Eros can get into danger whenever we take um, Venus or sex too seriously, or he says with a wrong kind of seriousness." He says, we have reached the stage at which nothing is needed more than a roar of old-fashioned laughter. This is not to say that it's not serious. Of course it is. But he says, eating is serious as well, (laughs) right? Um, But we also need to be able to see that there's something about sexuality that can be overdone and missing... uh, Maybe some of like the more intricate realities that make it uh, really uniquely odd and dependent on a lot of other, a lot of other things. He kind of notes, you know, why are there so many jokes about sex? That's a great question. I've always thought there's a lot of jokes about sex because in our brokenness, we really try and uh, overlook or cover up for that which is really intimate and personal. It's kind of the sarcastic comment that can break away from what's really serious or, or vulnerable. It's like, oh, that went too deep too quick. And like, how do I make a joke to kind of get it lighter again? Um, but again, why, why are there so many jokes about sex? Sex, this thing that brings two people together in this unrepeatable way that also, as I said, brings us into this cosmic dance and also brings us into a divine, supernatural participation as well. But the over-seriousness about sex, says Lewis, attempts to find an absolute in the flesh. He says, banish play and laughter from the bed of love, And you may let in a false goddess. So I read that and that helped me to kind of appreciate where he's coming from. And again, he's also coming from the 50s and and 60s where there was just a a, a very different look at what happens in the bedroom that uh, we, you know, uh, where are we at? 60 years later, 70 years later, or in a very different place where there's not there's almost nothing serious taken about sex so that's why this is like that was hard for me to kind of like resonate with and but I can I can appreciate this if it's only seen in this really strict rigid um, maybe like program like like if sex becomes programmatic yeah we're gonna it's gonna suffocate just the goodness that that is there so play and laughter yeah, what a what an amazing thing. He has uh, so, some really funny insights. He, well, he says the sensible lovers laugh that it is a part of a game, a game of catch as catch can, and the escapes and tumbles and head-on collisions are to be treated as a romp. In Eros, at times, we seem to be flying, right? Romance ten- tends to take us flying. In Venus gives us the sudden twitch that reminds us 
we are really captive balloons. So to like bring us bring us back to just some of the more like carnal limitations of whether it's uh, the time of day, whether it's what kind of day I've had, how tired I am, what I've eaten, or uh, what I have tomorrow, different anxieties or um, different responsibilities. All those different things can come to just like play into like, how come my soul wants to soar in this romance and yet my body is kind of bringing me back to like, huh, can't do what I want to do. St. Francis expressed uh, a proper view of the body as being brother ass, which Lewis really appreciates. (laughs) And I hope we do too. Um, Not in that it's a total uh, animal creature to just dismiss, but a an ass, a donkey, is something that is that is strong and reliable. Um, but it is also something that, yeah, we we can certainly laugh about. As uh, a donkey is very commonplace as well, not to be taken too seriously. So, yeah, what a good thing to not take it too seriously, and to also. Um, learn how to laugh and learn how to, how to see, yeah, just like the freedom of being able to be seen and known and accepted and to be able to, um, yeah, just see kind of the, huh, the ridiculousness of how we're being called as humans, male and female, to participate in something so much greater uh, than, we re- than we really deserve. That like brings us back historically to just like ancient, ancient roots and actually allows us to participate in the future. Can you imagine if we actually had a like our mind around just every single sexual encounter has the potential to change human history? Huh, like, it, yeah, just incredible. He spent some time talk, talking and kind of responding to a question is male headship something to be feared or rejected? He, I thought he tra- treated this very well. He's not necessarily writing a theological treatise or, or book, but he's not afraid to be scriptural and spiritual in, in his responses. Um, how does he get here? I guess, first of all, I love this that Lewis does an amazing turn of phrase in talking about the unseriousness of sex, its playfulness, to then highlight this reality in which the male and female play a part that is beyond them. Did you catch this? It's the, it's the playing a part. So that we might think that being naked is a sense of being most ourselves, most vulnerable, most seen. In a sense, this is true, but in another We are most united with our humanity at large when we are naked. He says that it is more when we are clothed that we have this uniqueness that's proper to ourselves, most visible. Quote, by nudity, the lovers cease to be solely John and Mary. The universal he and she are emphasized, end quote. He calls this the pagan sacrament, I don't know if that was kind of lost on you, but kind of referring to the greater vision of the two becoming one. So just on a a pagan or a secular or horizontal 
level, the two become one, mind, body, and soul. And this has these cosmic implications. He talks about like the sky father and the mother earth. So these are invoked here as an image of even just the sky being a giver of nutrients and the earth being the one that receives and bears the fruits. And so in all of creation, there is this male-female dynamic, this categorization of the giver of the seed and the receiver, the one that bears and um, the one that that gives. And so in this nakedness, there's something beautifully sacramental about it on a pagan level of entering into this cosmic dimension. But deeper, he says, there's a religious sacrament seen in Ephesians 5, where we see the man and the woman tapping into the love between Christ and his church. And this happens most especially when the husband images Christ by giving up his life for her. So, is male headship something to be feared or rejected? He answers with a resounding no. To be able to see, first of all, in a cosmic natural reality, that we need to hold and respect properly the distinct roles, that there can be an equality, I didn't say that right, equality, (laughs) equality, equality and difference at the same time. And that doesn't mean that one is better than the other, but that does mean that they have their distinct roles and we don't want to confuse them. And, And so too religiously, that men would be the heads of their wives, of the family. This is an incredible responsibility, right? Because the, the husband is the head in as much as he resembles Christ, who dies for his bride, lays down his wife, serves her, loves her, forgives her, especially whenever she does not deserve it. She's rejected him. She's abandoned him. She's scourged him, crowned him with thorns, and abandoned him altogether. That's the, that's the love that is the, the headship that can mirror to us this life of grace that flows through this constant, faithful, unwavering love of Jesus Christ for his church. And then are you ready for this line? This. Um, it's a, a little paragraph unto itself that I'll read. He says, The sternest feminist need not grudge my sex the crown offered to it, either in the pagan or in the Christian mystery. So do not grudge my sex, the males, the crown offered to it. For the one, the pagan crown, is of paper, and the other, of thorns. Right? So on the one hand, it's just a, it's a, it's a roll, that paper crown. It's just a roll that hearkens into the, the cosmic male, female, masculine, feminine roles that we see all throughout nature. But in the other one, it is something of complete self-sacrifice, martyrdom. He says then, The real danger is not that husbands may grasp the latter too eagerly, but that they will allow or compel their wives to usurp it. Period. <laughs> he does not elaborate. He just says it and leaves it. And I starred this, underlined this, um, not as some like, male victory here, but as something that I see as incredibly prophetic 
in a way that, uh, sorry, not to go on a tangent, but sadly in a way that it seems like feminists in seeking equal rights have instead striven for being men and wanting to take over that role of men. And this has just led our culture into an incredible tailspin where men are no longer free in, in many ways to be men themselves. And women, it seems like, don't really have a clear vision of what it means to be a woman. And so in clinging, and, and whether this was from men or from the women, to usurp this headship, this unique role that men have, has really led our, our culture into a lot of, yeah, sexual confusion, a lot of unhappiness, and... Um, and everything else. So to, to respect the roles just goes such a, such a long way. Okay. A couple more things that he, that he emphasizes here about, um, romance. He turns now to Eros as a whole. He says, as Venus within Eros does not really aim at pleasure. So Eros does not aim at happiness. He says there's a blindness to romance that even if they know these two lovers, even if they know they're unhappy, they will hardly be dissuaded. I don't know if you've ever been there or if you know someone who has been there and you can say, you're not happy. They're not good for you. They're not bringing out the best in you. This isn't who you're supposed to be with. It's like, forget it. I'm in my own world. I'm with this person and um I might even know it, but I can be so consumed and, and blinded. And this is rom- romantic love, right? That has incredible uh, emotions that are attached to it that can be very drug-like, that just uh, lead really to a reduction of critical thinking. That prefrontal cortex just takes a beating whenever the romance is on, is taking off. So this is the grandeur and the terror of love, says C.S. Lewis. I love that, right? And it, the grandeur of Eros has the, um, has the seeds of danger concealed. Just like this beautiful turn of phrase. He has spoken like a god, right? Romance has spoken like a god. His total commitment, his reckless disregard of happiness, his transcendence of self-regard, it sounds like a message from the eternal world, eternal world. So do you see like the, the grandeur of Eros, like that on the one hand, it can lead to incredible self-sacrifice, incredible perseverance, and just complete dedication. Isn't that what we want? Well, yes, unless it leads to the destruction of the person, the destruction of the couple, or the destruction of the just wreckage of different friends and family members alike. And so this incredible voice that almost comes from romance almost has like this authority, almost like a divine authority. But we need to be careful because it's not necessarily from God. It's not necessarily good. It can actually lead to evil. Quote, it may well be Eros in all his splendor, heartbreakingly sincere, ready for every sacrifice, except renunciation, end quote. 
Oh, it sounds so glorious. I'm ready for every sacrifice except to renounce it. And this is where, gosh, sometimes love is most powerfully manifested whenever the love is sacrificed, whenever the love itself is renounced. Do you know what I mean? That to say that I, I love you enough to let you go. That, that is one of the most powerful ways to really show that, that you love another person. How can romance bring us close to God? By resemblance? Yes. And not simply by approach. That needs a lot of work. So do you remember in the um, different approaches that he talked about in the very first chapter? There are some ways that, uh, that loves can be close to God by resemblance, by nature, in other ways, by approach. Um, and so, so with, with romance, just to, to say in brief, there's something beautiful that really does connect us to God. Because in this romance, we have a little glimpse of the characteristics of God, of his pursuit of us, of his exclusive love for us, his choosing us, his desiring all of us, this totality, right? We have a God that is jealous, jealous in the sense that he's not content just with a piece of our lives or half of our hearts. He wants everything, and that is very much of a lover. Um, And so too, in the relationship with God, that it is fruitful as well, it bears life. All these things bring us into uh, a glimpse of this romantic love that's willing to sacrifice itself, squander even its own good for the other and for that relationship. And so in this, there's an incredible invitation for sanctity that just because we experience eros ourselves, it has to be helped out. It has to be united to Christ so that we can learn to perfect it aim it, rule it, so that it can actually be virtuous and not just self-seeking, but um, others, others seeking. And this is why that example of the woman in Luke chapter 7 is mentioned. The one um, who is forgiven much because she loved much. She has this nearness of approach to Jesus because of the greatness of her love for him. And this is how Jesus is able to forgive her so much. Because in her love, her complete abandonment, dedication, offering of herself to him, recognizing who he is, she has expanded the capacity of her life to receive that merciful love. So in this, we see again, a glimpse of Jesus as the bridegroom and this woman as the bride. And so her love is actually tapping her into the sacrament of Christ's love for his bride, the church. And so this is where romance, far from just being something animalistic because of its uh, passions, desires, or even earthly worldly pleasures, 
it can actually lead us into something salvific and redemptive whenever it's ordered towards Christ and receiving his, his love for us. Two more points. First, um, Eros makes a promise of eternity. And this is incredible that in its very essence, it promises forever. But Lewis says, what, in a, what a joke in, in a very real way. And all the time, the grim joke is that this Eros, whose voice seems to speak from the eternal realm, is not himself necessarily permanent. He is notoriously the most mortal of our loves. The world rings with complaints of, it, of his fickleness. What is baffling is the combination of this fickleness with his protestations of permanency. To be in love is both to intend and to promise lifelong fidelity. Love makes vows unasked. It can't be deterred from making them. I will be ever true are almost the first words he utters. Not hypocritically, but sincerely. No experience will cure him of the delusion. We have all heard of the people who are in love again every few years, each time sincerely convinced that this time it's the real thing, that their wanderings are over, that they have found their true love and will themselves be true to death. Yet Eros is in a sense right to make this promise. The event of falling in love is of such a nature that we are right to reject as intolerable the idea that it should be transitory. And why one high bound, it has overleaped the massive wall of our selfhood. It has made appetite itself altruistic, tossed personal happiness aside as a triviality, and planted the interests of another in the center of our being. Oh, how good is that, right? To be able to just like hone in on the, the fickleness that desires permanence. I want to say forever. And yet, gosh, romance comes and goes with circumstances, with emotions, and with so many other life events. And so what is the, what's the answer? Well, Maybe, maybe first I'll ask, why is there such this promise? And I think he doesn't quite talk about it, but on the one hand, there is this promise that Eros speaks. First of all, because of the dignity of the hearts, that in romantic love, there is this opening up of really letting another person see me and to know me and to receive me. And in that sacred exchange, there begs a permanence, a promise that if I let you see me, if I let you receive me, to have all of me, that you need to promise that you will always be there. And you can see then how the only person who can ultimately receive us perfectly, faithfully, truly loving us to the end is God. But in a glimpse, the love between a man and a woman in this promise to give and to be received wholeheartedly, perfectly, is this glimpse of, uh, of the divine promise. 
that I will be faithful to you always. And so in that, it begs for a promise. It also begs for a promise because in this romantic love, there is the potential of new life. And in that sense, there's this this really, really important understanding that I understand or I need to understand in Eros that this isn't just about me. This is about you. This is about us. This is about the new life that can come from this. And it's only in the promise that now our self-gift through the sexual act has a sacred place to be given and received and for children then to have access to both a mother and a father. Okay, how in the world can Eros do this with its fickleness, with its um, wavering of emotions and everything else? It needs help. It needs to be ruled, he says. Quote, we must do the works of Eros when Eros is not present. He makes a funny line. He says, it's like a godparent who makes the vows, but we're the ones who need to keep them. Um, so this all good lovers know, though those who are not reflective or articulate will be able to express it only in a few conventional phrases about taking the tough along with the smooth, not expecting too much, having a little common sense and the like. And all good Christian lovers know that this program, modest as it sounds, will not be carried out except by humility, charity, and divine grace, that it is indeed the whole Christian life seen from one particular angle, end quote. So what is the help that it needs? Well, it needs, first of all, virtue. It needs discipline. It also needs sanctifying grace, humility, mercy, (laughs) right? Forgiveness, divine grace, the sacramental life, the aid of family and friends, that there would be this humility in romance that says, I'm not going to be able to do this on my own. I need others. And, and this is truly the Christian life of, of just recognizing just how dependent we are and in the need of God and in need of help from others. Otherwise, we are doomed. We are doomed. We need a savior. We need help. We need grace. So what a beautiful love this romance that can draw me into the life, the world of another person that's made in the image and likeness of God. And in that, I can catch a glimpse of the the ache, the longing that I have for that infinite love, that permanent, faithful, total, free, and fruitful love that Jesus Christ offers to us through the cross for us, his bride, Friends, we have one more chapter left, and you don't want to miss it. Uh, I encourage you to read ahead, and then we'll dive into it in the, the last podcast episode of Charity, this agape love. And this, this is truly the fulfillment of all desire. Let's keep each other in prayer, and I look forward to being with you next time. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. To learn more about Drybones Ministries, events, and initiatives, and to support this podcast, go to drybonespgh.org. Thanks, and God bless you.